Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. And as you're opening to Genesis chapter 2, I want to just thank you for being patient with your pastor. It's taken us a while to get through Genesis, and it may take us a little longer because as I'm going through this book, I'm just finding such richness. And so pray for me this morning because I've got a lot to say, and I want to make sure I say it clearly. So I just want to thank you in advance for your patience with me this morning. Many of you are very familiar with the Fabergé egg. Anybody familiar with the Fabergé egg? It's considered to be one of the most exquisite, most famous pieces of of artwork or of craftsmanship that's around. Back in the late 1800s, the Tsar um, Alexander of Russia decided to give his wife, the princess, an Easter egg for their anniversary. And so he commissioned Carl Fabergé to create the Fabergé egg. It's this exquisite, ornate, beautiful little egg that has become a symbol of luxurious richness and exquisite beauty. And, and think about the things that are beautiful in our world that have been crafted or created by master craftsmen. Think about the Sistine Chapel in Rome. It took Michelangelo four years to complete this masterpiece. And so you think about the Sistine Chapel and you think about the statue of David, both of these stand as images of Renaissance art. The Parthenon in Greece, the Taj Mahal in India, the pyramids in Egypt, the Colosseum in Rome, Big Ben in London, the Eiffel Tower in Paris, the Statue of Liberty, the the Great Wall of China. You think about all of these amazing structures that our world looks at as grand things of, of art and architecture, and behind all of those was a master architect or a master craftsman or an artist or a sculptor. Think about the top-selling paintings of all time, the most expensive paintings in the world. Three of them are by Vincent van Gogh, and three of them are by Picasso, considered to be the greatest artists that have ever lived. And I bet you, if you were to put the Mona Lisa on the market to be sold, it would probably be the top-selling piece of art ever. But it's behind a glass in the Louvre. And so behind all of these major pieces of whether it's art or architecture or sculptures, there's a master craftsman. There's an artist. There's a potter. There's a painter. Now, why do I draw your attention to this whole idea of a sculpture or a potter or a painter or a master behind an exquisite work of art. Well, we come to our text this morning in Genesis where we see God being the one who fashions people into his image as an exquisite work of art. If you were here a few weeks ago, we looked at our Trinitarian God, 
God who said, let us make man in our own image, referring to God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And we saw that God made man in his own image. And then we saw that God rested on the seventh day because he had completed six days of creation. And it wasn't because God was tired and God somehow got worn out. But what happened was God was stepping back from his creation and he was enjoying what he had created. And he was entering into, a, into an enjoying type relationship with his creation. And he called it very good. And so now we come to Genesis chapter 2. And there are many liberal scholars out there who would say that Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 1 are in conflict with each other. They're two separate accounts. You can't trust them. They're they're conflicting. And so they just kind of deny the whole Genesis account. And as you look at Genesis 1 and you look at Genesis 2, yes, there are differences. But let me just explain to you the purpose behind why Genesis 1 exists and why Genesis 2 exists. Genesis 1 is the big picture. It's God creating the universe. It's God creating the entire cosmos. It's the big picture view of things. And then when you get down to Genesis chapter 2, it telescopes down to the earth and specifically Adam. And so it's really telling the same story, but from two vantage points. And so this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to dive into Genesis chapter 2, and we're going to see the continuing account of creation. So let's pick up where we left off a few weeks ago, Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. We'll read 4 through 17 this morning. So Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was coming up, or was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bedillium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, what is the major overarching theme or the big idea from this passage of Scripture? It is simply this. The sovereign potter enters into a covenant relationship with his special creatures, human beings. Now, I've chosen these words carefully, and so we've got to ask some questions. Why do I use the term the sovereign potter? And why do I use the term that God enters into a covenant? 
And why are human beings a special act of creation? We're going to answer those questions this morning. And so what I want us to do is I want to divide up this passage of Scripture into two sections. I think the text does that for us. Verses 4 through 7, we see the sovereign potter fashioning the man. And then in verses 8 through 17, we see the sovereign potter entering into this covenant with the man that he's created. So let's explore this first section, verses 4 through 7, and here's the point of verses 4 through 7. The sovereign potter fashions man as his special creation into a living soul. The sovereign potter, and we'll, and we'll talk about this language, why I use the language sovereign potter, because I think the text and the language that's used in the original language here emerges that, that we can get this, this language. But the, the first thing I want to draw your attention to is something very interesting. In verse 4, we have the first of ten what are called toledot formulas. Now, you don't have to remember the word toledot. It's just Hebrew for these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. There's ten of these in the book of Genesis. Now, the ESV and the King James, I think, give a little better definition than maybe some other translations, but you've got this idea here. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth. Some translations say this is the account of what Moses is doing here as he's writing Genesis is he's cluing us into a, a new section. And as we go through Genesis, we will see 10 of these. These are the generations of And Moses purposely does this to introduce a new theme. So it's a literary convention here used to help us understand a new theme. There's 10 of them. I mean, go to chapter 5, verse 1. We won't look at all of them, but you'll see this is the book of the generations of Adam. In chapter 6, verse 9, these are the generations of Noah. In chapter 10, verse 1, these are the generations of the sons of Noah. And so all throughout Genesis, we will see this over and over again, but it's this whole idea of offspring or descendants. That's very, very important in the book of Genesis. Offspring, descendants, generations. That's the theme that pushes us through the book of Genesis. And it's interesting that the wording here is these are the generations, these are the offspring of the heavens and the earth. Now, I didn't think the heavens and earth gave babies. They don't, but it's a literary way of saying that Adam comes from the ground. And notice how the wording is changed here in verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. The language is shifted from the earth coming first. So Genesis chapter 2 is shifting us to the earth where God is going to fashion man. But I also want you to notice something else that's changed in Genesis chapter 2. Notice God's name. In the day the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. In chapter 1, God is referred to simply as God. Elohim. It's the generic term for God that you find in the Bible. It means master or sovereign. But here, for the very first time in the Bible, you have Lord God. And Lord should be in all caps in your Bible. It's the Hebrew word Yahweh. Yahweh 
Elohim. It's the first time that God gives his covenant name, the name that God gave to Moses at the burning bush. You remember when Moses was at the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord... The God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Lord. Now, Yahweh, just say Yahweh, it has in its root word the whole idea of I am. So Yahweh is this this covenant, very special, personal name of God where he's going to enter into a covenant relationship with his people. And so the wording changes to Yahweh, Elohim, the Lord God, is going to be fashioning Adam into his own image. But look at verse 7. What does verse 7 tell us? The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. The Lord God formed. This word formed, if you trace it all throughout the Old Testament, it carries the idea of a potter, a master potter who's scooping up dirt, scooping up clay, and he's fashioning and he's forming Adam as this master potter. And there's a play on words here in the original language. The word for ground is Adama. The word for man is Adam. So Adam comes from the ground. And you've got this whole idea of God being the sovereign potter. Does Adam create himself? Does Adam just emerge from the proverbial evolutionary goo? No, God is the sovereign potter who is fashioning and forming Adam. We see this word show up all throughout the Old Testament. Job understood it in Job chapter 10, verses 8 through 9. Your hands fashioned me and made me, and now you've destroyed me altogether. Remember that you've made me like clay, and you will return me to the dust. Jeremiah eighteen six. O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done? Declares the Lord, behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. And then Isaiah 64, 8, But now, O Lord, you are our father, we are the clay, and you are our, and, and you are our potter, we are all the work of your hand. Now the reason that God is the sovereign potter is it reminds us that he's in charge. God's the one that's forming Adam. God owns Adam. God has rights over Adam. And so the very first thing we need to remember, just, just as human beings, is that we don't have rights over ourselves. We are accountable to the sovereign potter who chose to create us. We are the pot. He is the clay. We are all the work of his hands. But notice the, the very intimate way that the sovereign potter creates life in Adam. What does he do? He breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. Now, I don't know what this looked like because I wasn't there. But just kind of picture in your mind the intimacy of God reaching down and putting his mouth on Adam's nostrils and breathing the breath of life into Adam. And Adam becomes a living creature. Adam becomes one with a soul. 
Above all of God's creation, humans are the ones that have what we call a spirit or a soul where we are able to relate to God spiritually. We can commune with God. We can have a relationship with God. Animals don't have that. Plants don't have that. And so we see from the very beginning that we are both body and soul. Now, God could have created it just with the body, and we'd be walking around like maybe like monkeys or something without a soul. Or he could have created us just with a soul without a body and we'd be floating around up somewhere in the ether. But God in his sovereignty chose to create us as a body and a soul coming together. So you are an embodied soul. You have soul and body together as a human being. And God in his sovereignty is breathing life into Adam, showing this intimate act of creating man in his own image. So that's the first thing we see in this first section. The sovereign potter breathes life into man as this special, unique creation. But let's look at the second section. We see this in verses 8 through 17. In verses 8 through 17, we see the sovereign potter entering into a special covenant with Adam. Not only does God breathe life into Adam and form Adam, but God's going to enter into a covenant. Now, I need you to hang with me this morning because the word covenant does not show up in Genesis chapter 1. I mean, Genesis chapter 2 But we see the biblical truth of a covenant here, and I want to show you that. There are four observations from this section that I want us to look at. And this may be new territory for many of you, so so I'm trying to maybe um, bring some new things out because sometimes these these creation accounts, you're like, I've heard the creation story. God made man his own image. Let's just move on to Noah or something more fun. As if Noah's fun. God floods the earth. Or Abraham. But what I want you to do is I want to show you some things that emerge from this that help us understand how God is entering into a covenant with his creation. And here's the first observation. We need to see how the garden, the Garden of Eden, really functions as a temple. The Garden of Eden is the prototype of the temple. We will see the temple or the tabernacle show up later on in the Bible, but right from the very beginning, God has established the garden to serve as somewhat like a a temple. Now, verse 8, what does it say? And the Lord God planted a garden in the Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. So the the text doesn't tell us right away, but we probably have to infer that Adam was not created in the Garden of Eden. God formed him outside the garden, And God put him in the garden. It says God put him in the garden. Again, it shows that God is sovereign. God is in charge. God is the potter. God is breathing the life into the man. And and God is placing the man in the garden. So from the very beginning, God is the one that's putting man in the garden. Now, what does the word Eden mean? The word Eden means luxurious waters. It means abundant. It means lush It means luxurious. So Eden is this lush, luxurious, water-filled place. Now, what does the word garden mean? That's where we need to really camp out. The word garden, in the original language, means a fenced-in area. A fenced-in area. So if you look at the description here, God fences in an area a luxurious, glorious, water-filled, gold-filled area and places the man in this fenced-in area. And it's not like God's being stingy. God's not being unfair. God's not withholding anything from Adam. God is placing Adam in this wonderful, beautiful environment. 
And as you dig deeper into this whole idea of the, of the garden functioning as a temple, think about what the temple functioned function as later on in Israel's, in Israel's history. What was the temple? It was the place where God chose to come and dwell with his people. God had the Ark of the Covenant in the temple. God's Shekinah glory came and filled the temple. The smoke filled the temple. The temple was the visible representation that God was with his people. Now, what do we see in the Garden of Eden? Is God with his people? Yes, in a very intimate way. God walks in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve in this fenced-in area. What else is in the temple? What else is in the garden? What do you have in the garden? You have the tree of life. What do you have in the temple? You have the golden lampstand with the 12 branches that represent light and life to the nation of Israel. What else does it say that you have here in the garden? It says it had a lot of gold. The gold of the land is good, verse 13. Bedillium and onyx stone are there. Gold and onyx. If you go trace the construction of the tabernacle and trace the construction of the temple, it was furnished with gold. And why was onyx so important? Onyx is there in the Garden of Eden. Onyx, onyx stones, are what the priests had on their vestment. It was called the ephod. In the priest that ministered in the temple, on their, on their clothing, they have these onyx stones, 12 of them that represent the 12 tribes of Israel. So you have gold temple, onyx stones on the priestly vestments, and in the garden you've got gold and you've got onyx stones. It's this whole idea that God is creating a kingdom from the very beginning. Who's the king of the kingdom? God. And what is the kingdom of God? We've talked about this the past few weeks. The kingdom of God is God's people, Adam and Eve, in God's place, the Garden of Eden, under God's rule and God's blessing. And so here's the real question. How is Adam going to live in this perfect environment under God's rule and God's blessing? How's it going to go for Adam? We'll find out in a few weeks that it doesn't go well. I think you guys know the story. But what I wanted to show you from the very beginning is that the garden is a prototype for the tabernacle. It's this whole idea that God is, is choosing to dwell with his people in a fenced-in area where he can be ruling them and blessing them and relating to them. It's from the very beginning pages of the Bible. Let's look at the second observation. This is one we don't like to think about too much. We need to understand the ordinance of labor in that we were created to work. Work is not a four-letter word. Some people think that work is a curse. Can, you, can we turn the air on? I'm seeing people fanning. And is it on? Okay, is it not working? Because I'm about to die up here. That's because I'm hot and I'm running around. But can we just maybe even turn the side? I'm just seeing people fanning, and, and I, don't, I just want to make sure that the, the things are working. So work. Contrary to popular opinion, when did God ordain work? Before Adam and Eve fell in the garden. Now, work is bad. Work is cursed. Work is hard. After the fall, you've got thorns, you've got thistles, you've got to plant and irrigate and and labor. But notice what God says there in verse 15. 
What does he say in verse 15? The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to do what? To work it and to keep it. So before sin enters into the world, God ordained work. God ordained for us to labor. God ordained for us to cultivate, to be cultivators, to be creative, to work, to be productive. It was only after sin entered the world that that work became hard labor, that that work became the ground that was cursed. And it's very, very interesting because I want to show you this temple imagery related to the garden. What does it say there in your text? You guys tell me. What are the two words? In my translation of verse 15, the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden to do what? Work it, keep it. Work it, keep it. The only other place in the Bible where those two words show up together, to work it and to keep it, refers to the Levites in the temple and what they were supposed to do working in the temple. So you see a connection there with what Adam's supposed to do in working and keeping the garden the same way the Levitical priests are to work and keep the temple. You see this in Numbers chapter 3, 7 through 8. They, speaking of the Levitical priest, shall keep guard over him and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting, that's the tabernacle, as they minister at the tabernacle, they shall guard all the furnishings of the tent of meeting and keep guard over the people of Israel as they minister at the tabernacle. So what's the significance of this? The significance is, is that you and I need to see work not as a curse, but as a God-given assignment that God has given us to bring him glory. You may hate your job, and you may hate the people that you work with, and you may think that your job, whatever you do, whether you, you work in the home or you work outside the home or whether you're a student, whatever you do to cultivate, to labor, to work, you may think of it as a drudgery, but God from the very beginning has said, work is meant to be a way to glorify me. And you know what Paul says in the New Testament? Paul echoes this idea that work was ordained from the very beginning to bring glory to God as an act of worship. In Colossians chapter 3, 22 through 24, he says, bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Not by way of eye service, and what that means is not when they're looking at you, just don't work good when your boss is looking at you, or as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. And look at verse 23. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Whatever you do, whatever your job is, do it heartily. Do it passionately. Give it your all. Not because you're getting a paycheck and not just so your boss can look at you. Now, those are important things. We want to please our boss and we want to we work hard. But what's the motivation here, Paul says? You're doing this because you're serving the Lord. You're serving the Lord. You are working as unto the Lord. You are giving worship to the Lord in how you work. Okay, now this is where it gets a little bit more difficult. Here's the third thing. What exactly is the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil? What are these two trees? We are not given much information about these trees except that they're there in the middle of the garden. Now, we're not told that Adam was prohibited from eating the tree of life. All we're told is that Adam was not able to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So what in the world is the knowledge of good and evil? What's this tree of knowledge of good and evil? And what would happen to Adam if he ate it? 
Now, all throughout history, there have been numerous attempts to try to figure out what the tree of knowledge of good and evil is, some good, some bad. I want to give you, historically, the, 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 the three wrong views, I think, that people have come up with and to try to define what the tree of knowledge of good and evil is. And so here's the first view that some people have had. It's one of the earliest views. The first view says this, that Adam did not know right from wrong until after he ate from the knowledge of tree of, uh, ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Once he ate from it, then he would know right from wrong. Now the problem I have with that is that God gives him a command and God creates him in his image and it makes it almost sound like Adam is clueless as to what right and wrong is before he eats of the tree. It makes it sound like once Adam eats of that tree, then he'll know what bad things are and then he'll know what good things are, but he needs to learn it through experience. Why would God command him to eat of it if Adam didn't know right from wrong? So I think that we kind of have to look at that view and say, maybe a good try... But I don't believe Adam was clueless. I believe that Adam knew right from wrong before he ate from the tree. Now, the second view says that when Adam and Eve ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, it would bring sexual awareness. They would be aware sexually of, of how they were with each other. Now, this doesn't make sense because, as we'll see next week, Adam and Eve were created, and then God married the two and they were one flesh, and they were naked and knew no shame, and, and they understood sexual relationships. All the Bible says was that they, after they ate the fruit, that they were naked. They understood they were naked, and they were shamed, but it didn't say that they didn't know anything about sexual knowledge until they ate of that. And here's the third view. Some people think that that meant that if they ate of the tree, they would be all-knowing. They would be omniscient like God. They would know everything that God knew. Now, the text tells us that when they eat of the fruit... Their eyes were opened, but nowhere do we ever find out that Adam knew everything there was to know and that he had comprehensive knowledge like God. So if we look at those three views and say those are good attempts, then what is the knowledge of good and evil? What is this tree? And I've had to struggle with this this week and, and think about it and read about it because I think it's a, we talk about it all the time, the knowledge of good and evil, tree of knowledge of good and evil. What is it? What does it represent? Here's my best attempt. And I think I've got a lot of commentators and scholars to back me up. But here's what I think it means. God wanted Adam and Eve to grow in wisdom and knowledge on his terms, on his timetable, and based upon his own revelation, not upon their own experimentation, not upon their own autonomy. In other words, God was not withholding knowledge from them. He just wanted them to learn it based upon his revelation, based upon when God chose to do it, based upon when God would lead them, based upon dependence upon God. When you look in the Bible and you look at this whole idea of knowledge, it's often equated to a tree and being planted by a tree. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. What does it tell us? The fear of the Lord is what? The beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So how does knowledge begin? With the fear of the Lord. So here's what I think it means. God said to Adam and Eve, I will show you how to be godly. 
and I will show you how to walk righteously, and I will show you how you are to live, but I will do it on my timetable, and you will have to trust me, you will have to cling to me, you will have to wait for me, you will have to rely upon me, instead of launching off on your own and experimenting on your own and trying to do it on your own. It wasn't like God was with, with, withholding knowledge from them. He was just saying, let's just do it on my timetable. I want you to be dependent upon me, not independent. One Protestant reformer says this, Concerning the tree of knowledge of good and evil, we must hold that Adam might not, in attempting one thing or another, rely upon his own prudence, but that cleaving to God alone, he might become wise only by his obedience. Okay, here's the issue with the, knowledge of tree, the, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. What do people in our culture want to do? They want to be independent. Don't give me rules. Don't give me instructions. Don't let me wait. Don't give me an outside authority like the Bible. Don't ask me to cling to you, God. Don't ask me to rely upon you. I want to figure it out on my own, in my own way, on my own timetable, and on my own terms. Do we see that in our culture today? It's a whole rejection of authority. I'm going to experiment. I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to charge out on my own. And, and God says, Adam and Eve, just wait. Rely upon me. Cling to me. Learn from me. And as you learn to trust and as you learn to obey, I will reveal more and more to you. But do not dare eat the, knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because it means that in the moment that you're doing that, you're saying, I'm independent. I don't need to rely upon God. I don't need to trust in God. I don't need the revealed will of God. I've got it all figured out. So I think when Adam and Eve were tempted to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, it was a temptation to say, I can operate on my own without God, on my own timetable and on my own terms. It was like this. It was trusting in our own understanding instead of trusting in the revealed word of God. And it wasn't like God was being stingy, was he? God said, you're free to eat of all these trees. All these trees you can eat from, there's just one you can't eat from. And the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, it doesn't say that God was not going to reveal to them his knowledge or his will. I think it just means God was going to do it on his terms and in his timetable. What does Proverbs 3, 5 through 7 tell us? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. I think what God was saying there was, trust me, rely upon me, wait for me, cling to me. Don't do it on your own. Don't try it on your own. Don't experiment. Don't be autonomous. Don't be independent, but be dependent. I'm the potter. You're the clay. Be dependent upon me. Wait upon me. Worship me. Now, here's the fourth thing, and I think it's the most important observation. We see what's called the covenant of works here and how this is vitally important to understanding the rest of the Bible. Paul, I mean Paul, um, Paul talks about it later on, but God here enters into a covenant with Adam. Now, what is a covenant? A covenant is a legal binding agreement between two parties where two parties come together and they agree to terms and stipulations. And if, if one person of the party fails to live up to his or her terms of the, of the covenant, things go really bad. 
If you live up to your end of the covenant, things will go really good. There'll be blessings if you obey. There'll be curses if you disobey. And so what the sovereign potter's doing here is he is structuring a covenant with Adam. And you may ask, well, what in the world does this look like? Because God's not giving him an unfair test. This is not an unfair test. God's not withholding things from Adam. God is laying before Adam life. Choose life. You're in the garden. I've given you all these plants that are good for food. I've given you gold. I've given you bedillium and onyx and rivers. I've given you this perfect lush environment. I'm the sovereign potter. I've created you. And I've given you all this for your enjoyment, but there's just one thing you cannot do. There's one prohibition. There's one thing I'm commanding you. As a matter of fact, look at verse 14. And the Lord God commanded the man. It's the very first time God commands anybody in the Bible. It's the very first command in the Bible. Before the Ten Commandments, the Lord God commanded. God is giving a command. God is giving his law. God is giving his word. And God is saying, Adam, here's the way it's going to work. And it's implied there that if Adam obeys, he'll have life because the tree of life is right next to the tree of knowledge of good and evil. He says, here's the terms of the condition. You're free to eat of any tree in the garden. But the one tree, the knowledge of good and evil, if you eat of it, you will surely die. And if you die, it's not just going to affect you, Adam. It's going to affect the entire human race. Here's why it's called the covenant of works, because Adam stands as the, as the representative for the entire human race. Adam stands as what we call our federal representative in that when God entered into this covenant with Adam, it wasn't just for Adam, but it was for the entire human race. And what Adam's choice was is going to affect the entire human race. What Adam's choice does is going to have huge impacts on how we live our lives today. And so if Adam was going to obey the covenant of works, he would have life. If he disobeys the covenant of works, he would have death. Now, why do I call it a covenant of works? What's the condition that Adam has to live up to? Do we see grace here at all? It's works, because what is Adam told to do? You must obey. I'm commanding you not to eat. So holding up his end of the covenant means that Adam has to what? Pass the test. Adam has to not eat. Adam has to do something or not do something in order to live or to die. We'll see this later on in chapter 3. But what Adam does as the federal representative of the entire human race has major implications for you and me today. In that every single one of us is born in Adam. Now in the book of Hosea, the nation of Israel is held liable for breaking the covenant. God says, Israel, you've broken the covenant. You've broken the covenant. You've been idolatrous. You've been rebellious. You've broken the covenant. And I want you to notice the language in Hosea 6-7 because Hosea 6-7 tells us that Adam broke the covenant. Hosea 6-7, but like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. And you may ask, well, what covenant did Adam break? What covenant did Adam transgress? The covenant of works. Right here in verse 16 and 17, where God says, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. And so what does the covenant of works show us? 
it shows us that Adam didn't live up to his end of the bargain. Adam failed the test. And and just before you get mad at Adam, how many of you would have lasted longer than him? I mean, think about this. You're all sinners, and me too. Adam was in an upright state and perfect, and he still sinned. And so he transgressed, and Adam failed the test, the first Adam. So what do we need? What does the Bible tell us we need? We need the second Adam. The second Adam is Jesus who comes to do what the first Adam failed to do, and that's pass the test. We need a second Adam to come and live a perfect life that Adam never did and pass the test. We need a second Adam that can come and die on the cross for our sins the way that Adam never could. We need a second Adam to come and not only die on the cross but rise again and who lives in heaven and intercedes for us and is going to come back one day to do what the first Adam never did. We need Jesus Christ to undo what Adam did. We need Christ. Because listen to what happens the way Paul describes it in Romans 5.12. Paul tells us, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man. How did sin come into the world? One man. Who's the one man? Adam. When did Adam do it? When he ate the fruit. He broke the covenant. He disobeyed. He transgressed. And God said what? In the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. What does Paul say? Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death Through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. And here's the problem. And we'll talk about this in a few weeks, but I just want to lay it out on the table this morning. Every single one of us is born under the covenant of works. Every single one of us is born from the shoot, from the moment we come out of our mother's wounds. We are what the Bible says in Adam in that. We are trying to earn our way. We're trying to work for our salvation. We're trying to win brownie points with God. And the whole time it doesn't work because we're under God's punishment. We're under God's condemnation. We are sinners from the get-go, and we can't do anything to save ourselves. And that's a huge problem. Because every single person on this planet without Jesus Christ, is under the covenant of works, and they think in their mind, I can somehow do this. I can earn my salvation. I can be a good person. I can go to church. I can help the poor. I can give money to the poor. I can help an old lady across the road. I can say the Ten Commandments. I can go to catechism. I can do all these things that somehow God will look down upon me because of what I've done, and God will say, wow, you've done a great job. I'm going to save you because you're so good. That's the problem that all of us are born under. So what do we need? We need the second Adam, Jesus Christ, to come and not just restore Eden to us. You realize we don't go back to Eden. We get something greater than Eden. Eden was a little fenced-in area that had a geography. You notice how the rivers had boundaries? There was a geography. We don't know exactly where Eden was, but it had a geography. Tigris, Euphrates, Pihon, Shihon, these different, in, these, these rivers coming together. Jesus doesn't promise to take us back to Eden. What does he promise? I'm giving you the new heavens and the new earth. And it's not just going to be one man and one woman, but it's going to be the redeemed from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people together in the new created Eden the new heavens and the new earth where I will rule and reign in the kingdom. It will be God's people in God's place under God's rule and God's blessing. And think about the temple imagery. We don't have a temple anymore, do we? Trick question. Some of you are like, unless they built one in Jerusalem recently, I don't know. Where's the temple? Who's the temple? Some of you are pointing to yourself. 
The Bible says we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and the very Holy Spirit of God lives inside of us. Think about the implications of that. The same way that God walked in the cool of the morning with Adam in the garden. If you're a Christian this morning, that very same God through his Holy Spirit dwells inside of you and walks with you and guides you and lives in you and gives you the power to live the life that he's called you to live because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So it's something far greater. And so here's my encouragement to you this morning. If you're here this morning and your, your outlook on life is this, well, I'm a good person. I've never murdered anybody. I've never committed adultery. I've never done these bad things. I'm, I'm a pretty good person. And the way that God's going to look at my life at the end of days is I hope, I sure hope, I'm not really sure, but I'm crossing my fingers and I'm hoping not to die. But if I do die, I hope that my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds on the scale so that somehow God will look at my good deeds and, and hopefully he'll let me in because I've done better good than bad. If you're operating under that paradigm this morning, may I shatter that for you very kindly? You say, God doesn't grade that way. Because no matter how many good deeds you think you're going to do, you're still a sinner and you need Christ. The only way that you can have entrance into heaven this morning is by trusting in what Jesus has done for you. Jesus has come as the second Adam to undo everything that the first Adam did, to live the perfect life, to die the sacrificial death, to rise again for you and me, that today you can have life. So please don't leave this place thinking I can trust in myself. I've lived in Northeast Colorado long enough, eight and a half years, to know the ethos, the culture of this area is pull myself up by my bootstraps, be a good person. It's the air we breathe out here. And there's church people that breathe that air. And we have to remind ourselves, it's not how good I am. It's not how much I earn or how much I do or how much I achieve or how much I try to put forth effort. It's all what the finished work of Christ has done for me. And we wave the white flag of surrender and we lay down all arms and we say, I am hopeless. I am helpless without Jesus Christ. I'm not going to pull myself up my bootstraps. As a matter of fact, I need to die so that Christ can raise me up. And that's what needs to happen to you this morning. You need to die so Christ can raise you back up. You need to die to yourself, die to your sin, die to your goodness, die to your good works, die to you trying to earn and say, I give up. I'm going to die this morning so that Christ can raise me up to new life and give me hope and give me eternal life. If that describes you this morning, whether you've come to this church your entire life or whether you just walked in off the street, would you come to Jesus this morning? Would you repent of your sins? Hate your sin. Grieve your sin. Get choked up about your sin. Forsake your sin. Say, I'm not going to follow in, that, in, in those ways anymore and turn, make a 180 degree turn and turn to Christ and look at Christ and look at the finished work of Christ and look at what Christ did and look at the cross and look at Jesus and say, Jesus, I'm coming to you in faith. I can't earn it. I know I don't deserve it, but I'm coming to you in faith today. Would you do that today? The Bible says anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. I don't know about you, but I'd love to see people get saved this morning. Do you ever take for granted that sometimes we come to church and just think, well, it's going to be another day? Would that God save people this morning? I mean, you should be saying amen. Or as Vody Bauckham would say, you should say ouch. Would that God would save some people this morning? Let's pray. Father,
we are hardwired. We are hardwired to try to work for our salvation. We are hardwired to try to earn it by being good. Trying to figure out some way to be good with you, whether it's by being spiritual or being moral or, or trying to be a good person, Lord, and all those fail. Because the only one that was truly spiritual and the only one that was truly moral and the only one that was truly obedient was Jesus Christ. And Father, when we trust in Christ alone for salvation, when we believe in him, when we place our trust and our faith in Jesus, his record, his perfect record becomes our record. And then God can look down upon us and say that we're not guilty, that we're accepted, that we're holy, that we're righteous, not because we have done anything to make us that way, but because Christ has done that. So Father, if there's anybody here this morning that is, that is, that is in Adam, they know in the depths of their hearts this morning that they are without Christ. They're trying to earn, they're trying to work, they're trying to be spiritual, whatever it is, Lord. Would you, Holy Spirit, come and bring conviction, deep conviction in their lives this morning to know that they can trust in Christ alone for salvation. They can be saved this morning. Father, that's my prayer. Would that you'd save many this morning. You can save to the uttermost. Lord, I don't know everybody's heart out here, but I do know that without Christ, we're all doomed. So would you save many this morning, Lord? Would you liberate many from religion this morning? Would you liberate many from false spirituality this morning? Would you liberate many from trying to earn brownie points with God by trying to be a good citizen? Would you liberate us all and, and drive us to our knees to see the glory of Christ and the, and the finished work of Christ and the empty tomb and the glory of Jesus? And when we fall on our faces before this great Jesus and just weep because of the grace that comes in knowing that our sins are forgiven and we have a home in heaven and we don't have to worry about where we're going to go when we die because Christ did it. Moments after we sing, I'm going to ask you if you are here this morning, and that may describe you, and you may have questions or you may have concerns or you just need to talk to somebody. I will be down here at the front after the service. Pastor Andrew will be down here. Some of our deacons and elders and others that they can help you will be down here, and we want to answer your questions. We want to pray with you. We want to guide you and help you to understand the truth. So would you take advantage after we sing of the opportunity to come and get your questions answered if that describes you this morning. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. We love you and um, we just praise your name this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.